encourage you, if you are able, to stand with me uh, as we read God's Word together. Um, After we read, if you are someone like me who enjoys uh, holding a physical copy of Scripture, there are some at the back uh, made available for us. Um, So if you would like to hold the book and and follow with us, I encourage you after um, reading that uh, you can go do that. So uh, our text this morning is 1 Corinthians uh, verse 18. Uh, reading all the way through to chapter 2, verse 5. So let me read this for us. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. For it is written, I, God, will destroy the wisdom of the wise and I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. Where is the one who is wise? Where's the teacher of the law? Where's the debater of the age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since in God's wisdom, the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached. For the Jews ask for signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom. And God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many were wise from a human perspective. Not many powerful. Not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something, so that no one may boast in His presence. It is from Him that you are in Christ Jesus who became wisdom from God for us. Our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption in order that As it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 1. When I came to you, brothers and sisters, announcing the mystery of God to you, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness, in fear, And in much trembling, my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not be based on human wisdom, but on the power of God. This is the Word of the Lord. You can have a seat. Well, it's been three weeks since we have celebrated... God's saving, grand saving event of all of creation, the cross of Jesus. And as, as I was preparing uh, this sermon, thinking about the fact that we have Lent, which is 40 days of, of often us really focusing ourselves on the sufferings that were leading to Christ. And then we have the moment of the crucifixion, resurrection, and then sometimes it, it just ends there. But instead, actually to say, we're in a season of celebration. 
We're in a season of, of joy, as the church saying, that Christ is not in the grave. He is actually resurrected. And this implies the theme that I want to be talking on this morning, that new life is found in new places. I mean, how often do we expect to find life in a graveyard or maybe bring it to Vancouver to find beautiful wildflowers in the alleyway? Or even this morning when I woke up, I saw the contrast of bright, shining sunlight and pouring rain. And saying, I'm actually grateful for both because it means we have the lush, beautiful green surrounding us at this time of the year. New life in new places. This, this got me thinking that I know that I personally have expectations in different places that I go. So maybe for you, you come to church in the morning and you expect to have mediocre or great singing. Maybe you're a part of a community group and you expect that that two-hour session will be your God conversation for the week. Maybe when you go to work, you expect that to be the place where you'll slowly be able to build up more and more um, credentials before others. But I know in death, often we associate it with nothingness. Things are over. Things are finished. I know I try to find life often in the same old places. Places I tell myself to look. Even though the cross and resurrection invite me, invite all of us into a new way of seeing. And so as a church, we're going to shortly be starting uh, a sermon series through the New Testament book of Galatians. Um, and before we get started on that in a couple of weeks, I thought that this week uh, I, would, I would talk a little bit about the Apostle Paul, the author of the letter to those in Galatia. So our text this morning, 1 Corinthians 1, 18 uh, all the way through to chapter 2, verse 5. Paul is offering to us his core motivations of what he believes it means to live new life in Christ. If, if you don't know anything about Paul, um, let me just briefly give a, an account of, of his life. His previous name was Saul. And after this radical transformative moment, a conversion on his way to start locking up people for following Jesus. Locking up those who were confessing in this resurrected man from Nazareth. Paul was blinded by a light and heard a voice. This light to the apostle is not simply a revelation from God. It is truly the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ to him. In this moment, Paul's beliefs, his behaviors, his sense of belonging are all renewed. They're transformed. We might even dare say that on this dusty road to Damascus, Paul experienced a death and resurrection. Everything changed after he encountered the living Jesus. It's as if Paul started running off of foreign fuels. That, that people weren't actually quite sure how to deal with. He had these new motivations. This new understanding of success. He had a new ends that he was running and training and pursuing for. And as I, as I took a moment to pause, I realized how crazy this is because the disciples of Jesus, those who saw Jesus 
on the cross, those who saw Jesus after the resurrection said, we don't trust Paul. The power of God, what we're seeing in Paul, that's on the outskirts of the power of God. Paul came to them and they're like, we can't trust this guy. It can't actually be true. The amount of transformation that this person, Saul to Paul, went through. A transformation like Paul's was on the outskirts of the power of Jesus in the minds of the disciples. And so in Corinthians, we get a glimpse of the Apostle Paul with his new motivations, talking to this ragtag group of followers of Jesus, those who are bent on division. The book of Corinthians is Paul just, I don't even know if it's putting water on fire or what it is. It's just there's divisions popping up everywhere and he's just like, okay, let's talk about this. Let's talk about this. Let's talk about this. About what does it mean to live the spiritual life in marriages? When maybe we don't want to be with the other person anymore. What does it mean to live the spiritual life when I actually want to exercise my freedom and authenticity over others? Not caring for the sake of them. Paul's addressing issues of co-workers who are prone to conflict with one another. That are taking each other to court. Believers prone to conflict, I know it, it has nothing to do with us today. We have nothing to add to the conversation of division or conflict or frustration in the church. I say this as a joke. There's no laughs. But Paul is trying to explain the extent of transformation offered in Jesus to this regular group of people. He's explaining what is central to him, to him changing his convictions, his conduct, his understanding of what the good life in community is. The division that Paul is speaking to is rooted in a lack of understanding of what this new spiritual life in Jesus is really like. He's saying, what does it mean to live the spiritual life in Jesus in content, in what we understand the gospel to be, and in form? How that actually transforms us to live and breathe amongst other people. And so our text, it's broken up into three sections for us this morning. The first talks about the message of the gospel itself. Verse 18 to 25. What is the content, what is the message of this gospel that Paul is preaching? So the first section is the message. The second, Paul gives an explanation saying, and you are those who have received this message. So he talks about the message in the first section. The second, he says, how does this impact the recipients of the message? So we have the message, we have the recipients, and third, we have the messenger. Paul says, look at me, this is how it's transformed my life and how I come to you. And so the whole movement invites us to believe this central point. This point, that because of the crucifixion of Jesus, new life is found in new places. And so, if you want to turn with me, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. This is what we read. Paul gives us his thesis statement right out of the gate. He's not trying to confuse us. This is what he says. Verse 18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But the word of the cross is the power of God to us who are being saved. Now, this might be hard for us to grasp 2,000 years later, but, but Paul is speaking to his audience saying that the cross brings to an end all forms of human wisdom. That's what he's saying. 
Because of the cross, all our understanding of human wisdom and human pursuit of success is brought to a drastic end. The Logos, the message, the Word of Christ, the historical reality of Christ crucified and His resurrection is going to make sense to some and to others, maybe this is more what we experience, it's just going to be utterly whack. It's going to be like, why are you doing that? In Vancouver, as we were praying this morning, the fact that we pay this amount of money to rent a building for one two-hour time together is crazy to some. Why would you spend that much money to gather as a group? Precisely in the apparent contradiction of the cross, this village carpenter in Nazareth, is crucified in attempts to defy Rome's power. That's what's happening. This carpenter was declared as cursed by Jewish law. He's hung on a tree. And apparently he's the king of the world. Maybe just sit in like, that's a foolish message. This is the word of the cross for the Apostle Paul. He declares that this message is the power of God breaking into the current rhythms, our current understanding of how life works, what we are pursuing. The cross breaks in and reorients our understanding of what is foolish and what is wise. A New Testament scholar named Richard Hayes, he says this, that if the cross is truly God's saving event, all human standards of success are overturned. If the crucifixion of Jesus is the ultimate event of salvation in this grand story of God, all that was previously understood to be the good life, our most prominent measures of success and doing well, they're brought to nothing. Whenever we hear the extremes of the word nothing, I was told in, in some great marriage advice that you should never say always and you should never say never. We hear this word brought to nothing and some of us are like, okay, I'm a little bit hesitant if it's actually all of the human wisdom is brought to nothing. But Paul realizes this and, and he quotes from Isaiah. He quotes from the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 29 knowing that the Corinthians, who would have heard this letter read audibly as a group of people. It's one thing when you read something on the internet by yourself. You can kind of respond how you want. It's another when there's a group of people all hearing this message. But Paul immediately shifts and he says, God actually declared this long ago. In Isaiah 29, this is what we read. Paul quotes this. From the perspective of God, I, the Lord will at some point destroy the wisdom of the wise. I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. We read in the text, to to those who are perishing, to those who are being destroyed by the lies of our current world, God is actually going to destroy their understanding of what it means to live wisely. What it means to live well. But to those being saved, crucial word, being saved. A reminder that we don't just say this once and we're done. 
this beautiful process, one degree of glory to another, being transformed into the likeness of Jesus, to those who are being saved. The wisdom of the cross is the power of God. This is the most magnificent way that God can break into our current age. God shows up in ways that transcend human comprehension. Any worship crafted or measured by a human standard or a human-made ritual, when we craft God to be who we want Him to be, our tongues might speak loyalty when we come and sing, when we come and talk with other people, but our hearts are actually drifting one degree off, away from the glory of God. And Isaiah says, sometimes your hearts are far from true worship. They're far from transformation. So this is what God says in Isaiah. And I see this as encouragement. Paul reminds us of this here in 1 Corinthians. God is saying, I will do something extraordinary. The wisest of the wise, the grandest of teachers, they have no adequate response to measure my saving moment of my people through Jesus crucified. They will not know how to comprehend new life coming in new places. When I say new places, I'm not saying that they've never been there before. But new because they were not seen to bring life before. Like the graveyard that we see and we celebrated three weeks ago. Empty. Paul goes on to say to the Corinthians, honestly, in verse 20, where have you found any other satisfying explanation of what the good life is? Where have you actually found anything better? Where's the one who has out-IQ'd God? Where is there a greater teacher of character formation, justice, and mercy? Where is there a greater philosopher in this age, in this time, telling us how to understand ourselves and how we interact in the world? Or just how we deal with that coworker that we just don't like? Where, Paul says. He uses this apocalyptic language, kind of a big word, but this language that kind of lifts up the veil. It unveils something. He says, in this present age, where have you found that? In this moment of time, where have you experienced wisdom greater than God? And so I ask you honestly now, where outside of Jesus have you found a story that offers you a greater understanding of your being, your beliefs, your behavior, your sense of belonging? Where have you actually been offered a consistent, coherent story and invitation that helps you understand your identity, purpose, and belonging greater than Jesus? As I was reading this, I think it's really easy at this point, at least for me, and, and we'll talk a little bit about this later, to be like, man, is Paul just degrading them? <laughs> kind of making them feel dumb. But what I, I don't see this. I see at the beginning of the letter, Paul is not degrading the Corinthians. He's actually offering them encouragement. Neil Postman, who is um, American educator, he's a, a, a media critic. He wrote a, a couple famous books. One of them is called Technopoly. 
the other book is called Amusing Ourselves to Death. And he writes something that I was thinking about during um, when I asked myself this question this week. Where have I found a coherent story um, that better explains to me my understanding of identity, purpose, and belonging? And what Neil Postman, he talks about is how the information that we receive now is context-free. By that, what Postman is saying is from images that we get from Instagram or advertisements that we get when we're watching YouTube videos or commercials for um, the next undergrad degree at this college. This information is coming at us like a random potluck of things. It's just, it's not in a coherent story. It's actually set up by these, often by these impersonal algorithms. It's not context specific, it's context free. And often this, this information that we gather Postman says, when it's coming at us and we don't actually know how it all lines up, it actually leads us to be really overwhelmed. Because we're not actually sure how to filter and sift what is good and true and beautiful and what actually is not helpful for us. So he says, in this context-free environment of gathering information, we're going to be led to feel overwhelmed and we're going to be led to division. The second thing that Postman talks about in his other book about us trying to make our sense in the world as we gather information, is that he says the most popular information wins. We're going to interact with the information that gives us the best dopamine hit, that we feel best about, that others enjoy. And yet in that moment, we're actually going to be led Again, not to listening to a coherent, meaningful message of how to live. We end up knowing a lot of things that don't actually really matter. We end up knowing a lot of things about a lot of things. And we're not exactly sure what those things mean to us. I share an honest story. I help out at an alternative learning program called Take a Hike at John Oliver Secondary. Amazing program. I've been there since October. I'm there every week. And a grade 11 or 12 student came up to me. This student, the teachers are not afraid of the student, but this student can debate better than arguably any adult in the room. You don't really want to get in a discussion with this student if it's going to get to a point of opinion. Because this student is brilliant. This is a quote, a direct quote. After the student was taken outside by a teacher, I talked to the teacher And then I talk to the student. Student says to me, Mitch, inside the classroom, I'm I'm like a professor. I'm brilliant. He said, out there, I'm a young hoodlum. This is the student acknowledging, I think this is actually an unbelievable moment. In here, I am smarter than anyone else. But in my life lived, I'm a young hoodlum. It hasn't translated. And I don't say this to degrade the student. I actually have unbelievable respect for the honesty of that statement. I know a lot of things that actually are not affecting the way that I'm living outside of this classroom. And I think that's what Paul is getting at with the information often that we receive. Paul is saying, this is a filter. 
This is a point that we can actually allow information to sift through. And like this thread that we talked about with um, Gareth and Carly, this thread of the gospel that actually unites and holds all things together. It actually leads to life abundant. It actually tells us and encourages us that which is helpful and that which is not. That which is wise by the world standard and that which is foolishness to the world. And yet we're invited to step into a way of unity and peace. A motivation by this beautiful message that invites us to care for other people in justice and mercy. This is the message of the cross. Paul says this is the main glue, the main filter that all of our information should be sifted through. And so in God's wisdom, in the grandest of stories, to communicate His love to me and to you and to the world, to our friends... Paul writes this, God chose that the world did not know God through human wisdom, but God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached. God is pleased by those who actually hear how foolish in the, in the world's eyes the gospel message is. And he says, I'm pleased that you would follow me. God saw saw fit to extend His invitation in a way that we as humans cannot engineer, we cannot craft, and even if we could, we wouldn't want to. I see this as relieving. This insane process of the human pursuit for utopia, the best world ever, time and time again, us human beings trying to provide ourselves with a way of life that's worthwhile, a way of life that we feel good about, that we feel comfortable, a way of life that we feel like we're helping others, and yet often exhausted trying to impress and convince those around us that we're doing a good job. Our coworkers, maybe that we have it together, students that we're doing better than they are. God declares that what we have often felt as the cause of our anxiety is not the end that He is inviting us to pursue, even if it seems like it's the common sense thing to do. I think this is so relieving to us. These pressures that we can put on ourselves of expectations. Jesus is just saying, that's, that's actually not the invitation that I'm inviting you into. That's a gift. That's the pressure valve being released. This is Paul talking to the Corinthians. But let's be real. It really isn't that easy. <laughs> that shift. That, that pressure release valve. It's not always the easiest thing to find. And Paul knows that. So in verse 22, he says, Some of you, like the Jews that he's described, they thought that they mastered the understanding of God. They thought they had Him on point of how He would interact, where He would show up, how He would redeem us, and what that would look like. He says to the Jews, this message is going to be a scandal. Because it's not what they expected. They wanted control of divine revelation, but not the scandal of how God would bring it about. And I think I do that. (laughs) I don't think. I do that often. I don't want the scandal of the gospel. I just want the goodies from the gospel. That's what I want. Not the scandal that God's going to show up at a time and place that I don't expect outside a community group, outside of Sunday morning service. God might actually be inviting me into something. And so he says, To the Jews, this is going to be a scandal. But maybe for some others of us, 
We're like those in verse 22 that Paul references as people from other nations, the Greeks. He's like, this is actually going to be foolishness to you because they were seeking reason. They wanted a better explanation of the order of things. The aesthetic of how things were. Not that it would transform themselves, but that they just would know that they had found the right thing. And I think that that contentment can drive me as well. I place myself in a pedestal above others because I found the better way. Not that it does anything for me. Just that I actually have it. Or so I think. We want the ten steps of reason, or at least what I deem to be reasonable. And this, this way of thinking, I encourage for us, is not new. <laughs> this idea that we want God to kind of work and think and act in ways that we get to control. Bound by our cares, our family dynamics, our career path, our pursuit of authenticity, our own happiness. There's a word that, that some scholars use, or three words that scholars use to describe this understanding of God called moral therapeutic deism. To bring those three big words to an image. You have that pain in your back, the knots that you've kind of given to yourself by the way that you've lived. You go to your RMT. You lay it down. You don't want to speak. And their job is to relieve you of that. As long as it's within the bounds of your health insurance. No more. Exactly within the financial limit that you're given. And then you leave. And they will do that again when you come back. And that is their job. Sometimes we view God in this posture that we actually have God at our disposal. To act in ways that we see fit. But then in verse 24, Paul gives this encouragement. He says, even though to the Jews it's going to be a scandal, to others of you it's just going to sound whack, it's going to be foolish. He says, to all people, Jews and Greeks, those who accept and are called to God's grand invitation, Jesus Christ, His cross is power and wisdom. And so this is the message that Paul is putting forth. To those who receive me, I am pa- Christ is power and wisdom. And so I ask now, before we talk about the recipients, before we talk about the messenger, I just ask this question. What expectations of success do you feel burdened with because it's the standard of common sense? What expectations of success do you actually feel burdened by Not because God has actually invited that burden to be there, but because that's just what common sense tells us is worth living for. What are the areas that you feel weighted down because that's just what the wisdom of the air we breathe says is worth living our life by? And how do you perceive the world as being different because the cross is the saving act of God? What shifts in the world when we actually see that the core central act is not a lofty teacher coming telling us that we just need to learn more. It's actually a teacher coming and dying for us. How would that shift 
our perception of the world and our place within it. And so Paul, after giving this message, countercultural, foolish, probably to those listening, he moves from talking about the message in verse 18 to 25 to he says, now let me give some further explanation. Let, let me actually show you what this looks like. So verse uh, 26 to 31, Paul moves from the message to the recipients. So he begins verse 26 with this, um, with explaining. He's saying, look to yourselves, consider, ruminate, steep yourselves in what God has done to involve you into this grand story. Brothers and sisters, consider your own calling. Brothers and sisters here, what wisdom from the world gave you standing before Jesus? When you started interacting with him, what gave you standing that he would listen to you? What proved to Jesus that you were worth him having you with him? What did you come to say like, Jesus, I am Please, It's like the schoolyard pick. I'm really good at kickball. I can play third base. Paul says, consider your calling. What were you like when Jesus invited you in? This is what we read. That It says that Jesus, the power and wisdom of God that we just read about in verse 24. He says, He has power and wisdom when you yourselves, brothers and sisters, not many of you were wise and powerful. Verse 27. God chose what the world thinks is foolish to shame the wise. God chose what the world thinks as weak to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. What is regarded as nothing to set aside what is regarded as something. New Testament scholar Gordon Fee writes it this way. I figured if I tried to reword it, it would just be plagiarism. So I just put, I put the quote here. By choosing the lowly Corinthians, God, by loud declaration, has forever ruled out every imaginable human system of gaining divine favor. For Paul, the watershed is the grace of God manifested in the death of Christ for sinners whereby God has eliminated every human pretension and all self-sufficiency. Thus, one must put full confidence. One must boast in the Lord and the Lord's mercy. Perhaps a strange thought to us. Um, and actually for some of us, I know... Um, a handful of years ago, there's this emphasis within the church that you are regarded as dirt, that you bring nothing here. And there's actually a, a language of degrading the self in order to, to attempt to bring Jesus to this greater light. I think that Paul doesn't want us to go so far down to say that we are worthless because we're made in the image of Christ. But what he is saying in this moment is that by God calling us, those who often rebel... But image bearers, he is shaming what the world sees as strong. By us gathering here, by him inviting us, he is shaming what the world sees as powerful or successful or efficient or worthy of platform. 
He has overturned what it means to be an iconic influencer, a podcaster or a writer as the means of success or the ends of success. God has created all things from nothing. And now Paul says, God chose what is insignificant, despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something. I love that line. God uses that which is nothing to bring to nothing that which is something. Friends, take encouragement that in a world where IQ is the measure of intellect, a new age brings in, has broken in that measures wisdom through the cross of Jesus. There is beauty and intention and new life in areas that you might feel like you're failing in by the standards of your Instagram feed or the standards of your class average or the standards of your family and expectations of your parents. You might be failing by that metric. None of our boasting or our attempts to reach this cultural standard need to be heard by Jesus. You don't need to present Him the gains from your year or your marks or the status that you have at work or you're being able to share at a conference or a workshop within your organization. Our ultimate boast when we stand before Jesus is that we acknowledge in fullness that He is our source of being, belief, behavior, and sense of belonging. He is our righteousness, Paul writes. Jesus, He's our righteousness. He's our holiness. He's our redemption. Not as a success of three steps that we have to master, but rather in fullness. This is what Jesus extends to us. Right thinking, right living. An understanding how to care and give charity to others. So where might you be missing the beauty of new life because you're too busy or too tired trying to make something beautiful to offer to God or to those watching you. Where are you missing the new life that wisdom of the cross is offering you because you're too busy actually just trying to form something to impress God that we can give to Him and say, I've done a good job. Now will you let me in? I'm encouraged that Paul does not start with the people that have the radical testimonies. I don't know if you've heard those before. You're like, man, my testimony sucks because I did not go through all of these extreme hardships in life and and Jesus scooped me out of the dirt at the end of it. Paul doesn't start there. He starts with the people, people in front of him in ancient Corinth, a group that he did not hand select, but he was faithful to. A mixture of ethnicities, generational divides, economic status was different, slaves and masters, and Jesus, or Paul says to them that God's wisdom makes you all a part of God's grand story. And so Paul says, look to yourselves. This is, you are an example of the wisdom of Christ that you are here, that you are following. And so he gives us the message He says, look to yourself as recipients and last, just briefly as we close, he says, and look to me. What does this mean to share this message? Paul Paul declares that the cross motivates both 
the content and the form of how this message is presented. In the first two verses, Paul talks about the content. He says, when I came to you, I did not come with brilliance of speech. I didn't come with wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Christ crucified. I had this moment that what if our posture towards others, uh, just others who are curious about Jesus actually took on this, if this was the content that we shared with them. The content being, actually the main message and reason why I'm here is not to argue you on this specific topic. It's actually the fact that I realized that I kept pursuing um, things that didn't actually come to an end. And Jesus says that I'm actually so worthwhile to him. What if the fact that Jesus met you not at this point of you being lofty, but actually in death and resurrection. What if that was the content of our message when we're sharing with our friends? To say, this has actually brought me life. And I don't need to argue you about things. What if we were just content if that was the content of what we shared? So this is what Paul says is the content of my message. The last three verses of our text is Paul talking about the form. He says, I came to you in weakness, in fear, in much trembling. My speech was not with persuasive words of wisdom, but a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not be based on human wisdom, but on the power of God. Uh, last week, uh, our community group, we talked about this kind of interesting Christian subculture of the celebrity pastor and the pains of when people who do hold this level of spiritual leadership fall for whatever reason. I think that this subculture is really interesting and I think it begins to take place when both the pastor and the congregation together see wisdom as something that humans can curate. And therefore we find ourselves needing to surround ourselves with people that know what, what's up. So it's both and. We think we know all things and then we follow people who we think know all things. And so I offer this uh, in closing. I've been challenged lately to, con to consider this maybe simple belief. Do I think that I can learn just as much of what it means to follow Jesus by a youth student as I do from a very successful pastor who has a podcast that does not know my name or live anywhere close to me? So I say that to you. Do you believe that you could possibly taste new life by listening to the story of someone, maybe just within our congregation here this morning, that will never have a podcast, will never write or be mentioned in a book, and won't have 10,000 followers on Instagram or more? Do you actually think you could learn from them? And would it, is it maybe worthwhile to actually take in more content from these simple stories of transformation in and around us in forms that might not look as powerful, might not look as successful, but maybe that's exactly where the wisdom of Christ is pointing us to. God's promise of new life comes in areas we don't anticipate. Um, new life comes in new places precisely because a king was found on a cross and that king walked out of the grave. So as I, I invite Joan um, and the, the music team up,
I just wanted to leave with three implications that I saw from the text, and and then we'll respond in in song and and communion together. Three implications. Um, Because God's uh, power and wisdom are attached to the Spirit of God for transformation. So three things. First is I encourage you to control your content. To actually just take pause to say, huh, what am I listening to? And why am I actually listening to this? Is it because in my sphere of work, everyone listens and reads said person? Or is it because I actually think at this moment in time in my life, that is what I need to learn and grow to, to be transformed from one degree of glory to another? It's just simple, just to be aware of the content that we intake. Second is to place ourselves in situations that we know that we may not receive thanks or benefits. Place yourself in situations where actually the purpose of you being there is not to receive thanks and you're not meant to benefit. You're actually just in that space because you believe that's the invitation of Jesus for you. Maybe that's listening to the story of someone. Maybe that's helping out somewhere. Places where you expect that you will not receive benefit or thanks. Third, practice negation. By that, I mean this. Practice meeting others in a posture where you withhold maybe some of the rights of your influence or power or them looking up to you. That you withhold that so that you can actually take the nature of a servant and a listener. That times when you're with people is not always about you and what you can offer them. It's also about times for you just to be with them. Just as Jesus says, although I was in the form of God, I didn't count a quality of God something to be grasped, so I became nothing, a servant for you. So three things I just encourage you this week. Control your content. Place yourselves in situations where you won't receive thanks or benefit. And third is to practice negation, this posture of listening. Um... I'm going to read Psalm 118 and um, the band can play afterwards and I'll be holding uh, our communion uh, cups uh, with the bread and the juice. I invite you during this first song, if, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you say this message is actually the one that is fueling my life, no matter how good I'm doing at it, if the direction of Jesus is where I'm going, uh, I encourage you to take one of these and to bring it back to your seat. And then after the first song, all together, uh, we'll, we'll participate um, in drinking of the juice and and the bread. But let me read this for us. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. God is revealing new life in new places, and it's worth our attention. 